Welcome to a new episode of Land Grant Holy Land in Conversation. My name is Matt Tamanini. On this podcast, we talk to people in and around Ohio State athletics and the sporting world at large to bring you a different insight and perspective to the teams, athletes, and university that you love. Since we are still new here in the podcast feed, if you want to hear something or from someone on this podcast in particular, feel free to reach out and let me know on Twitter at BWWMATT. Today, we are in conversation with Draft Network analyst Benjamin Solak to break down the Ohio State players eligible for this coming week's NFL Draft. Solak is phenomenal at breaking down all of this stuff. And I'm pretty confident that after you hear him on this show, he's going to end up being one of your go-to sources for draft coverage this week and moving into the future. You can find him on Twitter at Benjamin Solak. That's at Benjamin, S-O-L-A-K. He's a great follow. Do yourself a favor and follow him before the draft this week. All right, let's get to it. So I guess the place we have to start is with Nick Bosa. What's so odd about this whole cycle is that for basically the entire year, everybody has agreed that he is the best player in the draft. But ever since Kyler Murray decided that he was going to play football instead of baseball, it's been a foregone conclusion that he was going to end up going to the Arizona Cardinals and Josh Rosen would be sent packing somewhere else. In your mind, right. how does Nick Bosa stack up? To the rest of the field, is he still, you know, the quote-unquote best available? What does he look like compared to everybody else who is jostling for that first spot, regardless of what Cliff Kingsbury decides to do out in Arizona? Yeah, so I think I think you'll find with most people, their one-two players are Nick Bosa and then Quinton Williams, the interior defensive lineman out of Alabama. For me, I have Quinton ranked higher than Bosa. Now, both of them on, on my grading scale, which, you know, we use grading scales that mimic those the NFL uses, they receive grades that are, you know, called top 10 grades, which is pretty much the highest tier you can be in. Like, sure. you know, you can also get a Hall of Fame grade, but, like, it, that doesn't exist. So, you know, <laughs> we were talking about, you know, this is uh, this is beyond a guy you would take at the first overall pick. You know, it's like a potential trade-up candidate at the first overall pick. Now, obviously, with the Cardinals up there, this is a team that could – take a quarterback and number one overall, but probably doesn't have to, which is weird. That's not what you typically get for first overall yeah. picks. And, and even when like they can not take a quarterback, it's usually because they have a veteran. In this case, they have a, a second year. So it's very peculiar. So Bosa, if he doesn't go one, I would, I would put very, very solid amounts of money that he goes to. And it makes a ton of sense for the 49ers to get Nick Bosa as a foil to D Ford. And when we talk about Bosa versus Quinnen as the best player in the draft, well, we're just talking about film grades and film evaluation. What we forget to acknowledge is Bosa plays a higher impact position. Uh, people are caring more and more about interior rush and, and generating pressure from the inside. But the reality is that your primary pass rushers are still your outside guys, your edge players. That's what Nick Bosa plays. It is the most important position on the defense and the second most important position on the field. And so Bosa should be the first player selected if the Cardinals aren't going, Kyler. And if they aren't, he'll go to to the Niners. And and, and he profiles as a double-digit sack guy in the league, so it makes sense. That's where you got to go get those guys. Yeah, absolutely. So putting on my draft smokescreen conspiracy theory tinfoil hat, is there any way that Cliff Kingsbury coming in with this reputation for being uh, an air raid type quarterback or run and gun type quarterback or um, coach, is there any way that, the, that him t- 
telegraphing that he's going to take Kyler Murray number one is in some way trying to get some sort of right. uh, interest from someone else to come up and trade for that number one spot? Or is it just as cut and dry as it appears to be that he recruited Kyler Murray when he was coming out of high school, didn't get him then, and now just wants to pick him on his NFL team? Yeah, I'll, I'll say three things that I know to be true and then a fourth thing that I don't know to be true. Okay. Number one thing I know to be true. Uh, regardless of if they are 100% interested in Kyler, 0% interested in Kyler, anywhere in between, the, the Cardinals absolutely would have met with him and floated interest that they would have taken him. That was going sure. to happen regardless of the quarterback was going to be. So, so just the fact that they've floated interest doesn't you know, lead me either way as far as is it a spokesman or are they interested. Number two thing I know to be true, ownership, front office control in Arizona, a lot of it is unstable. You've got a lot of moving parts between Steve Kine, the general manager, Michael Bidwell, the owner, and then obviously you have a head coach transition in back-to-back years. The, the, the staff turnover is immense, and, and, and Arizona, a, a small market team, is constantly looking for a way to become more nationally relevant. And so there are factors here in the Kyler Murray decision that go far outside of Cliff Kingsbury, right, in terms of what Steve Kine may feel like he needs to do to save his job because he's been on tonight, and what Michael Bidwell feels he needs to do to make sure people are interested in the Arizona Cardinals in Phoenix. So number two, the thing I know to be true would be you know, this, this, this goes, the interest in Kyler goes beyond just the Cliff connection. There's other, other players who also have legit interest in him. The third thing that I know to be true is that it did not seem like a smokescreen three weeks ago. It's starting to seem more like a smokescreen now, just from what people are talking about in the league, which could just be, as always, we want something new to talk about, right? Like, it's like, you know, it's like the cycles yeah. of boredom in the last 10 days before the draft. But, you know, uh, I think it was Daniel Jeremiah who this morning said, like, you know, in, on March 25th, I was 90% sure Kyler was going around one. Now I'm 60% sure. You know what I mean? Like, there's been a little bit of a swing back on the pendulum. And so the fourth thing is I would say, even at the height of the rumor, I have been firmly in the camp that, I will believe it when it happens and not a moment before. And I would still, for myself personally, just lean in the direction that I don't think there's as much truth to the interest in Kyler at one as we think there is. And what it comes down hmm. to in, in, in every you know conversation that you have with people in the league, what you just increasingly learn is in order to be one of those 32, top 32 coaches in the world, top 32 general managers, whatever it is, you have to be a very self-assured and proud person. And it's very hard for proud people to draft the quarterback and then give up on him after one year. I just think that that the message that that would send from Arizona to the rest of the league is one of just incompetence and instability. That's a really hard pill to swallow. You have to know you love Kyler to kind of admit that mistake on Rosen that quickly. And so to me, I'm, 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 I'm as uh, suspicious as you'll find of anybody in draft media that they're selecting Kyler. We'll see what happens when it happens. I'll, I'll, I will only believe it at that moment. That's I'm, I'm, until then. I'm still just like, there's no way they're doing this. Yeah, it does. It does seem like a bit of a stretch. It seems weird, even by NFL draft, you know, rumors and speculation. It just, it just doesn't fit. Like, I mean, I understand the Kingsbury and Murray connection, so I guess that fits on a stylistic standpoint. But the idea to draft a quarterback number one overall when you have Rosen already in camp under a rookie deal. That seems that seems like a reach to me, but 
like you said, we will see here in about a week and a half. So if, let's say, Kyler Murray does get, end up going number one, I would imagine that's probably the only spot in the first, I don't know, you tell me, 10, 15, where he would actually end up going, unless, of course, the Cardinals trade down and then take him again later. Is there any other way that he would end up being the first quarterback taken if it was to come to somebody other than the Cardinals or if the Cardinals do end up taking Nick Bosa, does Dwayne Haskins automatically become the first quarterback off the board? Right. Yeah. So it, it, it's tricky because the Cardinals are between a rock and a hard place in the sense of like, if they really don't want to draft Kyler and put up the same building as Rose and then they lose a lot of leverage in trade conversations because teams know if they force them to keep Rose in and they can't draft Kyler because they have Rose in the building, then Kyler starts to fall, and then you start looking at the Raiders at four. So Kyler is unquestionably going to be the first quarterback off the board. I would say he does not go at one. He goes at three. Uh, okay. I mean, the Jets desperately, the, the desperately want to trade back, and teams will be worried about Gruden at four because it's not a well-kept secret that Gruden, who has a quarterback that he likes in Derek Carr, loves Murray. He's head over heels for him. So if Murray falls within range, Gruden's going to start to get itchy, you know, and then and, and so people are going to want to move up to three and the Jets very much want to move back. Let's not forget they're out two second rounders because of the Sam Darnold trade from last year. So they want to move back. Uh, so three would be where I would expect for him to go. Raiders trading up, obviously something that makes sense. The other teams that I think would potentially circle into striking distance would be one, uh, uh, the um, Cincinnati Bengals from 11 and uh, two would be the Giants from six. Those would be the two teams that I would say potentially do it. The second quarterback off the board, I anticipate not being Haskins. I think it's going to be Locke, and then Haskins will be three. Both of those guys should go in that 10-15 range. So what is it that has happened since he declared when Dwayne Haskins was the clear number one quarterback on the board, potentially even talking about, or at least people in, in the Ohio State circles, hey, maybe something crazy happens and Bosa and Haskins go one, two. What's happened in that? three months or whatever it's been to push Haskins down, not below one quarterback, but two quarterbacks and to drop down into the middle of the first round. Yeah, it's not, it's not so much what Haskins has or has actually, I should say it's not so much what Haskins has done. It's what he hasn't done. What he hasn't done is start. And that's just the long and the short of it. Like when, when you put Haskins film on next to Drew Locke's film, I think a lot of evaluators that you would see in the media would prefer what Haskins brings to the table. And so there's been a lot of media driven hype for Haskins. It's of course important to note that we in the media tend to spend more time watching players we know will eventually be top prospects late in their or earlier in their careers. Like we've watched Drew Locke for a couple of years, knowing eventually he was going to be a top sure. quarterback prospect. And so for us, like he's he's not really the new shiny toy on the block. Whereas for Haskins, it's much more interesting and exciting. Whereas the league, they just, you know, watch Locke, watch Haskins, boom, that's it. Uh, so so, you know, on paper, if you're not talking about the film, You've got a four-year starter in the SEC who statistically improved year after year after year after year versus a Big Ten quarterback. Big Ten is being terrible in recent years in terms of producing draftable quarterback talent. Coming out of an Urban Meyer system that has fooled evaluators before, one-year starter, only you know, 14 games, whatever, what's so much happening. So there's a lot of the signals that teams look for, a lot of the stuff that they like to make themselves feel better about quarterback draft picks. Haskins just doesn't check those boxes. Arm talent is there. Upstairs, he's great. Clearly a very smart player on the field. A lot of his issues on the field are experience-based. He reminds me of Sam Donald in that regard. We're just the, when, when, when things get a little bit wonky, there's a lot of panic to his game. And that's simply the, the nature of, of, of not playing 
and not starting at the college level for very long. So that's really, you know, it, it's, it, Haskins didn't do anything wrong. It's just his profile was never really going to hold up strong against Drew Locke, and Locke had a strong senior bowl process. And so Locke, for a lot of teams, is going to feel like a safer pick, especially in year one. So if they feel like they have to go get a rookie in place, they feel like they don't have time to develop that player, they're going to prefer Locke to Haskins. So uh, I, like, I like Haskins. I like him much more than Locke. But what we've been hearing from the league for the past you know, month or so, and it's starting to become really mainstream now, but from what we've been hearing for pretty much since the end of the senior bowl through the combine is less and Drew Locke is more likely to be the second quarterback off the board. You, you mentioned the fact that Urban Meyer quarterbacks have fooled evaluators in the past. Is there anything about the fact that Haskins, as much as he was, obviously he played last year under Urban Meyer, the offense that he ran was very much not the traditional Urban Meyer offense that Ohio State fans were used to seeing from Braxton Miller and, and JT Barrett, but it was more of what right. we anticipate happening with Ryan Day and his offense moving forward now, he, now that he's the head coach. I mean, he threw for 50 touchdowns, which was a Big Ten record, which if you would have told me that an Urban Meyer quarterback would have thrown 50 touchdowns, yeah, my head would have exploded. Is there any bit of that that whereas, yes, Urban Meyer's quarterbacks have – have presented some challenges in evaluating them. But now this adds in a completely other wrinkle because there's literally not been an Urban Meyer quarterback like this. So it's really hard to gauge how much of this was this particular system, the coach or a fluke, or if this was something that you can actually build upon moving forward into the NFL. Yeah, it's tricky. So the Urban Meyer spread is predicated on horizontal stretches. Like when the offense was first, like the Bowling Green era when Urban was kind of really like, you know, kind of taking the league by storm and the offense were catching eyes. It's all really built on the idea of the horizontal stretch, get the ball out of the quarterback's hands pretty quickly, give him a half field read, get the ball to a playmaker in space. And that was the, the impetus behind the Urban Meyer offense, how it developed is, is, is Meyer famously lost the game. Boy, I don't remember which team he was with at the time, but he famously lost the game where his star receiver had zero targets, zero catches. And kind of after the game, Meyer realized, like, I got so involved in X, Y, and Z and in this, you know, tendency and breaking this that I just forgot to get the ball to my playmakers. And I want to get the ball to my playmakers. And that was kind of the change in offense that, that spurred on the Urban Meyer spread system. And then, obviously, Utah, Florida, and we kind of take the lead by storm. That horizontal spread uh, manifests itself very clearly in Haskins' game. I mean, the dude threw mesh more than any other human in the history of the world over the course of his of his final season, which is objectively fine, but you're not going to see as easy and as effective as horizontal stretches at the next level, and that's going to be the main point of consternation. Haskins is not a, a player who has a ton of experience uh, reading a, a horizontal field progressions, right? So setting his feet to the right, seeing his first read covered, resetting his platform to the center of the field, seeing his second read covered, resetting his, his, his platform to the left side of the field and hitting his, his check down his third read. There wasn't that, um, uh, that high degree of pocket navigability and that, that degree of full field progressions in what Meyer has run. That's going to be the main concern. Now, there are systems you can get Haskins in the league right now where that's going to be much, much, much less of a problem than it will be for other teams, right? Like, I think if he goes to a Pat Shermer in New York, it makes a lot of sense for what could be potentially strong for Haskins. If he goes to a Zach Taylor in Cincinnati, oh, well, now we're dealing with, with, with uh, a play-action system with a lot of rollouts, with some multi-break routes deep down yeah. the field or reading deep to short, and that's different than what he's done. And so it comes to understanding how the Urban Meyer offense was successful, 
what exactly strong about Dwayne Haskins made him successful in that offense, and what are the similarities in terms of not exact route concepts, but in theoretical ideas like the horizontal stretch, how many of those similarities can you get in your offense to make him comfortable and successful in your one? Yeah, I, I don't think him going to the Bengals with a lot of rollout concepts would make a lot of sense, despite what great draft uh, analyst Stephen A. Smith thinks that he is actually a running quarterback, but uh, right. we'll, we'll leave that there. Um, one of the things you mentioned was that a lot of Urban Meyer's offensive philosophies are predicated on getting the ball to your playmakers, and in in another twist to what we expect from Urban Meyer offenses, last year Ohio State said woke up and all of a sudden realized hey, we actually have some pretty good wide receiver talent here uh, that we really haven't utilized uh, as much as we could have in in recent years. So it's now looking like Ohio State has three uh, draftable wide receivers, which is crazy that I wouldn't have thought that we would necessarily have that many on in a single co- uh, wide receiver room despite class. And now we ha- might have three in one draft. And at the very top of that list is Paris Campbell, who probably more than any other Buckeye, maybe even as much uh, as any player in the draft, helped himself quite a bit uh, at the draft combine in Indianapolis a, a month and a half ago. What what do you think about Paris Campbell's game and how it translates to the next level? Again, coming from an Urban Meyer offense that has had trouble directly translating uh, playmaker skill sets to the next level. Yeah, I mean, like four three one is four three one, no matter which way you slice. And so exactly. Campbell's going to be a helpful player in that regard, right? Like, you know, what we're talking about, and we've said this before, yeah, it's a, it's a player you get the football to, no matter kind of what it takes. If it's jet sweeps, then it's jet sweeps. Let's just get get the ball in the guy's hand. Let's let him beat the linebacker to the corner. We've got ourselves a free six yards. Like that's what game breaking speed does. You you accurately brought up Paris Campbell's really helped himself in this draft process. He got a big, you know, kind of. Can, uh, like consequential boost in terms of Marquise Brown, the speedster out of Oklahoma, who came yeah. in very light and also, you know, has a has injury. Well, Campbell kind of steps up into that void now of a potential early target for teams looking for a speed option. But what Campbell really did for himself that impressed teams was at the combine during the positional drills. Campbell showed an ability to track and adjust to the football down the field that he didn't have the opportunity to show much at the Ohio State uh, the, at, with the Ohio State Buckeyes because he simply wasn't used in that way. And that's a huge question mark the league wanted to answer with Campbell because we like to talk about, oh, he's a deep threat because he's fast. Well, you got to be able to find the football and get there. And, and it's easy to forget how tricky that is. It's easy to forget when you're traveling at full speed, you have to flip your head around, locate a tiny brown dot in the middle of the sky full of lights and people and figure out where it's going to end up. And also probably you're being accosted by, you know, in some of these players' cases, a larger, heavier person, right? Like Paris Campbell is going to be smaller than some of the corners he faces. Obviously, he can burn them, and if he can separate, that's great, but sometimes they're going to be in his cylinder. That tracking process is really hard. And so if, if Campbell has that skill, if he has – we talk about traits matching skills. He has the trait of deep speed. Does he have the skill to track the ball on the fly? If you have the marriage of those two, you're now officially a deep threat, and the league will draft deep threats as early as you want to. John Ross went nine overall, baby. If you can fly and you can find the football <laughs> down the field – we are interested. And so Campbell absolutely is in first-round conversation. It depends on a little bit where the wide receivers go. Right now, Like we're thinking maybe one to two go in the first round. If that's the case, I don't think Campbell will be one of them. But right. maybe if there does get a little bit more of a run on them, you look at a team like Baltimore at 22. Listen, the Ravens love speed at wide receiver, currently don't have any. 
sitting at 22, if they're not in love with Metcalf, if they don't love A.J. Brown, Paris Campbell makes a lot of sense for what they like. And so there are spots you could find Campbell fitting into round one. I anticipate round two being the spot for him. But, yeah, he's had a big, uh, a great pre-draft process, answered some of the questions left after he, uh, after he was done with the Buckeyes. Hopefully, at the NFL level, he does develop into that full deep threat. I mean, he's an electric playmaker. You'd like to see it. Yeah, so – I'm, he's the one that I'm most interested in as to how the NFL reacts to him. Bosa, Haskins, like you said, they're first half of the first round kind of guys. Paris is going to be a situational guy depending on how things work out in front of him. So I think it'll be very interesting to see if he finds his way into the first round. But if not, someone at the top of the second round is probably going to get uh, a really explosive playmaker. But there's some other guys that I want to hit real quick with you just give a brief uh, uh, you know, thought on them as a, a player as they transition to the NFL and then where you think they might go. Um, looking at somebody who had a great career at Ohio State, maybe never had the numbers or the accolades that people expected him to, but really, in my opinion, is another guy that translates really well to the NFL, and that's defensive tackle Draymond Jones. What do you think about him and his prospects in the next level? Oh, man, I wish Draymond Jones tested well. Because if he didn't test yeah. well, if he had tested well, excuse me, we could excuse a lot of stuff that shows up on his tape sometimes. He was to listen that he's a plus athlete and he's running himself out of position a little bit, but it's fine because he's quick, he's powerful, and he can get back into spots. And you see that. You see a highly penetrative player on tape. Penetration is what matters when we talk about defensive tackles. But Jones coming into the combine, a tall 280 pounds, makes him a very tough it's hard to say he's a three technique. You know, a guy comes in at six foot, you know, and he's 285. Well, okay, he's like a compact frame. We can kind of deal with that. Jones is long and he's lean, and that makes him more of a five tech, which is a bit of a dying breed at the NFL level. So we're already tricky there. And then uh, uh, slow, uh, lacking in explosiveness. We're talking in uh, average to below average measures for the vertical jump, the broad jump, the short shuttle, and the three-cone drill, all at a below average weight as well. So this is, this is a really tricky – Fit now. Where does Draymond Jones make the most sense? I like a lot of his flashes, and those flashes are probably going to get him drafted day two. I would say round three is probably the spot where he ends up going. The strong defensive tackle class is going to get pushed down a little bit because of that. That being said, teams who were willing to take the gamble are going to be a lot more bearish on the prospect of it now because of Jones testing. Okay, I, I I like that. I can I can deal with that. Now, one guy who didn't really have the opportunity to do the testing at the combine uh, is Kendall Sheffield. He had a pec injury during the bench press, very creepily similar to what happened to Sam Hubbard at the combine the year before. He did come back and do some drills. Uh, did a little bit of work at senior day. Had his own kind of combine like thing. But as far as I could tell, he didn't really run the forty, and that was really going to be what his calling card was coming into this draft. Despite the injury, he's a veteran player, lots of stuff on tape. He's a track guy with, you know, Ohio State records uh, in, in the 60 meters and all that stuff. So he's a guy who people can legitimately understand the measurables on him, despite him not having the opportunity to do him at the combine. But I think Ohio State fans will tell you uh, the de- his play in the defensive secondary has not been stellar. So it's interesting yeah. to me that he has opportunities to go in that second day. And it seems to me like that's just based on athleticism and not necessarily based on the actual film. Am I am I right or am I being too hard on a guy that I've watched more than probably a lot of other people have? 
Nah, man, I really think you're on it there. And, and to be honest with you, when I see Kendall Sheffield on day two, I think Codswall up. Like, that's just, that's some silliness. The, the, but the curse with elite, with elite athletes is at the high school level, you're so much better than your opponent that you just don't need to do much technique-wise. And then you get to college, and all right, well, the coaches are spending some time working on you with technique, but they've cut down on hours in practice, and we need to make sure you understand the playbook, and we need to get you out there starting early because you're a, an elite recruit and you're better than our other options. And so all of a sudden, there's not time to really develop technique, and so you just kind of go out there and you survive off of what you've got. Sheffield is impossibly quick, which is a really, really great trait to have as a corner. But his sure. footwork is bad, <laughs> and it saps away from his quickness because he's taking the wrong steps. He's, he's falling off balance. He's putting his weight in the wrong spots. And so you're drawing away from your own natural gift. Sheffield is a developmental player. You want to get him in the building. You don't want to be relying on him starting anytime soon because you want to solely be working on his technique. And hopefully year two, year three, you're actually getting something out of him. As such, yeah, to me, Sheffield's a day three guy. The NFL doesn't like this corner class that much, though, so they may want to gamble on his athleticism in day two. And if it happens, it happens. But I agree with you. I don't think it's the wisest pick. All right. I'm glad to know that my uh, draft evaluation skills haven't been hampered by my Buckeye allegiance. So I appreciate you confirming that. Um, so a couple guys here real quick, just where you think they might go just in a, in a real quick blurb, a few other guys running back, Mike Weber leaving early, mainly because he can't take over the position at Ohio state and he has too much competition from JK Dobbins. So it just made sense for him to kind of go and test the waters in the NFL. What do you think is going to happen with him during the draft? Weber will be day three, probably be, be late day three. The NFL knows his name, uh, and he's, he's a quality, well-rounded back, so he'll be part of a committee, part of a depth feed. Going to have to do something on special teams to stick around, but I think he will. All right, what about uh, wide receiver Terry McLaurin, who I think is another guy who really helped himself at the uh, Combine as well? Man, McLaurin ripped up the senior bowl. I mean, ripped yeah, it up yeah, uh, better than a lot, of, a lot of wide receivers who got there before him. Uh, special teams? background gives him a very high floor you know you'll be able to roster him experience starting inside and outside you know he'll provide you valuable depth round three day two makes sense for terry mcclure wow. there's going to be like three or four teams that are head over heels for him just the, the culture kind of guys you know, like you think about like a sean mcdermott in buffalo right or like even a ron rivera in carolina where someone came from these coaches are going to love 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 mcclure to death yeah there, there's probably no one in the ohio state draft class more than Terry McLaurin, except for maybe Johnny Dixon, that I'm excited about to have some some success. Like we'll bring up Johnny Dixon. He's a guy who I, I would just be happy if he signs with the team. I don't know that he's a, a guy that with especially with his injury background is going to be end up being drafted. Do you have any thoughts on him? I know he's not at the top of the class, but he was a guy that did fairly well at the combine like the other two wide receivers in the class. Yeah, Johnny Dixon, he'll be a, an undrafted free agent addition, and teams will be interested in him for two reasons. One, if you have a guy with injury background and you've done medical rechecks on him and you think he can be okay, well then, you know, if he can stick around, maybe he can make an impact. And number two, there were so many mouths to the results, you want to bring in their third, fourth target and see if they were underutilized just because there aren't that many passes to go around. And so undrafted free agent addition, yeah, I'm not sure he'll stick on, on a 53-man, maybe ends up on a practice squad somewhere, but he'll certainly be a guy who teams pick up off the street. There's no doubt. Awesome. Well, real quick, the last two I want to hit are the two Ohio State offensive linemen that are in this draft who one of the things that was very confusing about the Ohio State season this past year was how good the offensive line was in pass protection, but how poor they were in in run blocking. And the two guys in this draft class that I would imagine are going to go on 
I mean, or at least going to start being eligible for for consideration on day three would be Michael Jordan and Isaiah Prince. What do you see from either of those two guys? Yeah, so I think uh, Prince is probably the worst of the two players. And Prince had some, I think you said like uh, poor in run blocking, but strong in pass protection. Well, I think Prince poor in run blocking and sometimes poor in pass protection. You know what I mean? Just like uh, <laughs> yeah. his tape was pretty rough. And obviously, you know, he comes in as a as a. Um, I think Jordan was a four-star recruit. Prince was also a four-star recruit. Uh, Prince comes in as, as a high-valued recruit, and he's got nice frame. He's got a nice build to him. But simply, we've got a guy who his pass sets are really, really weak. He struggles to gain depth, and, and athletically, he's just not super interesting uh, at the next level, not very strong. And the guy like Michael Jordan, he's more interesting. Day three, you're right, at round four is where he's going to be a guy who's in, who teams start looking at. Uh, guard center versatility, always valuable in your backups. Uh, he needs work, right? He needs technical refinement. But if you yeah. bring him in with a day three pick, you give him a year of work, all of a sudden you've got a swing guard center. So that's your sixth man. That's, you know, you keep seven, eight offensive linemen. He's the one who backs up the three interior spots. That's always a win. And so I expect Jordan to be the guy who's drafted. Maybe Prince gets drafted on trades in day three, but Prince's tape really has some issues. Yeah, you're you're not going to get any Ohio State fan to argue with you that uh, Prince's tape has issues. He was the butt of many aggravations uh, this past season and the season before. But all right, I'm going to get you out on this question real quick. I'm going to take Nick Bosa out of this discussion because, as you said, he was a top, top grade. Um, But everyone else, including Haskins, Campbell, Jones, all these other guys, who do you think, having looked at what they presented on tape in college— uh, extrapolating it forward into the NFL completely random. I'm not going to hold you to this. If you're completely wrong, I will not make fun of you for it. But who do you think other than Bosa ends up having the best career in the NFL? When it comes to predicting NFL careers, you go off of, off of draft stock. The guys who get drafted the earliest are the most likely to have productive NFL careers because their teams will just give them the most time. Now that gets tricky with quarterbacks. Quarterbacks exactly. kind of play by different rules. So I'm going to step over Haskins. Uh, simply because, you know, with, until I know what system he ends up in, how, you know, if he's starting immediately, if he's resting, whatever it is, it's just very hard. And I'm going to go with Paris Campbell. Campbell's going to get drafted early. He's going to be given multiple years to stick. He's going to become a focal point of a, of a package of plays, right? We talk about sub-package and package plays. He's going to be a focal point of those because of his speed. And even if he doesn't stick with his first team, when he hits the free agent market, other teams will bring him in and see if they can get something out of him. Because, listen, speed is speed. When you have an elite trait, teams will always be interested. So Paris Campbell is my answer for that one. Thank you for listening to this episode of Land Grant Holy Land In Conversation. If you are finding the show on our site, make sure that you subscribe in order to get all of the ever-expanding LGHL podcast universe offerings, including this show, The Mothership, Hang Out in the Holy Land with Patrick and Colton, our new State Secrets recruiting show, and Outside the Shoe, our OSU non-revenue sports podcast. Don't forget to follow Land Grant Holy Land on Twitter at LandGrant33. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at BWWMatt. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you soon. Go Bucks!